On March 4th of this year, 2020, when How the Heck Are We Going to Get Along had its inaugural episode in person in Los Angeles in front of a live audience. Remember those things in person and live audience? When we had our very first episode, our guests were John Iadarola of the Young Turks, Matthew Sheffield, and Blaze TV's Lauren Chin. The discussion ran the gamut from the topics of the day, the primary elections, to mainstream media and the role that media plays in our political discourse today. Very little agreement amongst our panel. In fact, the only thing that everyone agreed on was the fact that they all liked the movie The Invisible Man that they had just seen in the theaters in the past week. Well, remember that? Going to the theater and watching a movie? I'm not a fan of movies like The Invisible Man, but at this point, I'd be more than happy to go watch it if I could get out of the house and go to the theater. But for our final live interview of 2020, we've decided to ask back one of our very first guests, Lauren Chen, the host of Pseudo Intellectual with Lauren Chen on Blaze TV, to recap a little bit of 2020 and touch more on one of the biggest topics of our very first episode, the media, the role the media plays, the role that fake news plays, the role that social media plays in our political discourse and how her opinions may have changed over the past year. Lauren Chen with Blaze TV. I'll ask her if the fraud claims are fake news, the importance of Twitter, the importance of Section 230, and how the heck are we going to get along? You, are yeah. you in Toronto? I'm in Montreal. Um, so actually, we, us in Toronto are kind of like the epicenters for Canada. So we're, mm. we've never really unshut down. We've been pretty much shut down since like late March, April. But now we're going into a really heavy where only essential businesses are open. Because it, I don't know, people... The cases keep going up. I don't know what's happening. Is it helping, do you think, there? I mean, Canada's definitely done better with this than America has. But is are, are the shutdowns effective in controlling it there? Or you don't think I so? I guess it's kind of hard on a province-by-province province basis. So in, in you know Montreal, it's definitely a lot more populous than you know, the prairie provinces. But for us, it's so strange. Like, we have we've always been shut down. And it keeps getting worse. You know, I saw Biden saying, oh, we need like 100 days of masks. And it's like, we've had masks for months and months and months. Restaurants have been shut for month, like for almost the entire year. But we're still having, you know, waves and waves of, of these cases. So I, you know, I'm not a scientist, but I, I feel like maybe the efficacy, but we, we did open up schools. So I don't know, is it is it the schools then? So, God, right, so but, but it could go either way, right? I mean, it could be that clearly shutdowns aren't working or some people could make the argument that shutdowns, it, things may be getting worse, but imagine if we weren't shut down, how much worse it yeah. would be. I mean, is there, is, well, it, it, what's the consensus there amongst folks in, in Quebec and the parts of Canada that you can, you know, well, speak with been, people in? There have been, uh, you know, the anti-lockdown protests as a, like in many countries. Uh, and I think a lot of people are really hurting economically, especially, like I said, the restaurant business. Like they've essentially been closed for the better part of the year at this point. But I think what's been frustrating about Canada and, you know, my, my dad actually, he got diagnosed with cancer this past year. So it hits close to home is that our shutdowns have affected our health care 
So everything has been kind of been put on the back burner. There are cancer screenings that aren't happening, medical like surgeries that have been postponed. Uh, and that's, that's really, really hard because I get that we need to protect people who are like immunocompromised. But there are other health concerns aside from COVID. And right now, those people are really, really suffering. And I don't think it's, you know, I, I get that hospitals are kind of like, where where you you would worry most for those people, but sending them home without healthcare is not the answer. But it seems like that's what our our politicians have been doing. What are the what are the economic issues? I mean, obviously we see the same problem here in America when when it comes to restaurants shutting and and businesses people going out of business and some people having no sign of a job for a while. I mean, people who yeah. are in the music business or the live performance business, like me. I'm not talking about myself, but anyone who tangentially is associated with that, whether you're an audio mixer or a lighting designer or a stagehand or or you work in the ticket booth for a theater. I mean, those jobs are gone for the foreseeable future. What What's Canada doing differently than the U.S. when it comes to supporting those folks who are out of work? Well, I think something that's really different, and this is kind of come to a head right now that the U.S. has just passed another stimulus bill, is that Canada's stimulus has been a lot more targeted, right? We haven't had anything where the government just blanketly said checks for everybody. Uh, any kind of COVID relief has been saved for people whose jobs have actually been specifically impacted by COVID. So there was a, it's called CERB, Coronavirus Emergency Relief Benefit, or I think is what it stands for. And people can apply for it. And I think it's, I forget what the exact um, payment is per per month, but it's specifically if you haven't worked or if you've had your hours cut by this much due to the pandemic. So it's not everybody getting it. Uh, and we've also had specific small loans for businesses that have had their, their, uh, you know, their payroll affected. Uh, and part of those loans are forgivable if they're paid back in, in a certain amount of time. So it's, and I don't think we've had, you know, the massive, anything like the massive <laughs> pork barrel stimulus that was just passed. So it's been, it's been more targeted, but I think it's also been a lot more uh, uneven across the board. There are Canadian provinces that really haven't had, haven't been hit hard by cases, unlike Toronto or sorry, Ontario and Quebec. So I think overall it's been. Is it easier to do that? Is it easier to target though when you're, I mean, a tenth the size? I think you're a little bit more than a tenth the size of the U.S. I mean, you got 40 million people, right? Yeah, it's 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 definitely it's much easier. Uh, but at the same time, Canadians were already on the top almost for uh, like personal debt uh, among other countries. Canadians are a very un- indebted people, unfortunately. And this situation has just made everything worse, especially for small business owners. So, uh, you know, the s- property prices around the Montreal area have been skyrocketing in 2021 might be the first time that it actually dips, which might be great. You might be thinking that's good news if you're looking to buy. But when you realize it's not if you're looking to sell. Yeah, exactly. Right? Yeah. <laughs> a lot of people, it's because they can no longer keep up with their payments. It's because they've lost their job and they're being forced out of their houses. So how how in the world did you get so interested in American politics? I mean, you you clearly know what's going on in, in Canada. Um and and there sounds like there's just as much interesting drama there. What what got you so interested in American political systems and what's going on here? So I'm kind of a third culture kid, I suppose. Uh, my parents, um, well, my mom's Canadian and my dad's, he's from Hong Kong and they met in Canada, but I grew up 
overseas. So I grew up in Hong Kong, Singapore, Shanghai, London, and throughout my childhood, I was going to American schools. So my education is actually American, even though I am not American. And uh, so I, you know, I kind of grew up learning from American teachers, a lot about American history. And then when I went to college, I went to college in the US, in the States. And so I studied political science in America. So again, American political systems. I interned on the Hill when I was a student as well. And, uh, you know, I've, I've since worked with American nonprofits and things like that. So I guess it's really, it's, it's strange. And people have asked me that, like, how come you know so much about American politics and why are you interested? Uh, but I guess, you know, in a lot of ways, it's all, it's all I've known. Is it just that, I mean, are, are younger generations now just more globalized in general? I mean, it's so much easier to communicate with people on, in any country online where I didn't have that growing up. Um, Is it, is it, is it a result of a generational thing? Do you think it's a good thing that we are more connected? generational. And, you know, I think there are pros and cons in in a lot of ways, but I think it's unavoidable at this point. And, you know, on our show, we also talk about, you know, what's happening in the UK. Sometimes we've done stories on France and in Australia. And I think what's interesting is that a lot of countries are having the same political problems, even though the specifics might be different. So I, I still think it's relevant to talk about uh, you know, for example, free speech laws in the UK, even as a Canadian. And I think I would hope Americans are paying attention too, because these are the same basic core issues that kind of, I guess, you have to struggle with over what is the role of government. So I, I think it is, you can at least learn a lot from each other, if nothing else. But it's interesting as I'm, as we're talking about it, I'm thinking, yeah, but isn't one of the big core problems, not problems, issues points of contention, however you want to say it, in in the UK right now, in many ways in America right now, certainly they're having the discussion in France and Germany as well, that there's a big contingent of um, each of those countries that is tired of the globalization. Like they don't want, uh, the UK voted to to leave the, the EU because there's a big group of folks in the UK who want to be a little bit more isolationist. I don't know if that's the word or not, but there's certainly a nationalist thread going through the UK. A lot of Donald Trump's support came from this nationalist America first, uh, you know, sentiment amongst a bunch of people who felt they were left out. And it's kind of, I mean, it's funny. It's interesting to me that there are people who are younger, who are very much against that in the UK and in the US and who are, you know, this the younger generations are globalized and if you look at the uk you've got these younger generations who are appalled by the idea that that the uk would want to isolate and would want to leave the eu is the, is it a generational divide there i mean you are someone who kind of speaks to a lot of that audience yourself in your show and and what you and your audience but at the same time you are almost in a way a product of the younger generation that has benefited from a certain degree of globalization and a ability to to learn from different cultures. I mean, is it what what's going on? Why is why is there such a generational divide there? Well, I think the first thing I would say to that is that I believe there's a strong difference between something like globalization and globalism. So if we look at the oh, economic, yeah, so if we look at the economic uh concept of globalization. You know, it speaks to things like uh, free trade and, um, you know, increased connections with business and things. And I would say cultural as well. But if we look at the 
political scourge of globalism if I can if I could do a better Alex Jones voice, which unfortunately I can't. Please don't. Um, that 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 <laughs> more uh, refers to things like larger overarching government structures that a lot of people believe would remove power from individual citizens in places, uh, let's say like the UK and transfer it in, in the case of the UK over to uh, you know, unelected officials in, in, in Brussels. So that is something very different than saying, uh, yeah, I want to hear about what's happening in this country. I think there's a lot for, that we can learn from their policies, et cetera. And also, hey, I, I appreciate the business aspect of being able to trade inter interconnectedly you know there there is a big difference there and i'm someone who is i'm very nationalistic i mean i i, I think canadian government should be mainly focused on what's best for Canadian citizens. But at the same time, that doesn't mean closing yourself off from the world and not wanting to talk to anyone else. And, you know, I know a lot of people who support Brexit and it's not necessarily because they don't like they want to close themselves off. It's just because they want more control over what happens over their everyday lives, which I think is, is, is quite reasonable. And actually, if we look at what the UK negotiations for Brexit specifically have been like since that whole referendum happened, it, it seems like the, the people who are pro- Brexit are very willing to to create new trade agreements and deals with places like the U.S., like Canada. So I don't, I I wouldn't say that it's you're either all, you know for globalism and globalization and everything must be international or completely closed off. I think I think there is a, a little bit of mix and match that could happen. Okay, well, so what's so let's let's help me out. So because I wrote this down because I like that difference between globalization and globalism what what are the good things about it then what are the and then what are the bad things about it what what is it that that you believe is a benefit of more interconnectedness and what are the things that people who you talk to are worried about from it sure well i think in terms of business let's say let's talk about that specifically uh Globalization in terms of business has been responsible for a big uptick in the standard of living in North America, what the average person in Canada or the U.S. is able to buy, right? And that's just because Chinese can manufacture it cheaper. But on the flip side of that, and this is kind of where things might go too far, you've also had entire industries that have been uh, kind of decimated by corporations packing up, leaving to go overseas. So it's definitely a double-edged sword. You know, as a student of economics, you learn that when stuff like that happens, it's that the benefits are diffuse, but the negative consequences are always very pinpointed. And that's something that each individual country has to weigh the pros and cons of for themselves. Um, is it worth completely opening up and saying like, all right, let's flood the market with these cheaper goods, even though we leave, we we lose the these amount of jobs? Is, is it the right thing to do to maybe put some tariffs in place so that, it, you know, prices do drop, but not all jobs are just completely wiped from the face of the earth when it comes to American manufacturing. That is hard. And that's something that I know the U.S. has been struggling with, as has pretty much every other industrialized country. Uh, another thing, if I can talk to the yeah, cultural yeah, yeah. And political aspect of it is I think that uh, the and this is especially true for media, the the presence of like Western media in non-Western countries, I think has been a huge part of younger generations in places like, let's say, Hong Kong or the Middle East, wanting to embrace more Western style liberal democracies. That mm -hmm. That is 
absolutely an export that the West has has given to these other countries. And I think that is a good thing. And, you know, there are like one of the examples in my own life is the concept of free speech, you know, growing up in Hong Kong and then I've lived in China and even Canada. We don't really have the concept of the Second Amendment like Americans do. But I am so glad that through my upbringing, I've been able to appreciate that because I really do think that's one of the most important rights as humans we have. And even though it may not be recognized by other countries, I think it is innate to us as human beings. What's the downside on that? Because we're doing two sides of the coin. The, well, the media mean, and the, the the spread of democracy and those Western ideals, so to speak, to places like, you know, arguably how we saw the Arab Spring. I think people yeah. might use that as an example. But what's the downside of that? Well, I guess the downside of that is that, hey, if good ideologies spread really fast, then negative ones must as well, right? Have we, we have- seen that? Well, we have seen it's it's kind of calmed down, you know, lately. But for a while, there was this big surge in, in global global terrorism. We ha- we have had uh, Western citizens, I know, definitely from Canada and I think from European countries as well, tr- uh, be radicalized online, travel to places like Syria. Uh, we've also had people like the Charlotte's uh, was it Charlottesville shooter. I'm forgetting. Uh, no Christchurch shooter again right. radicalized online. Uh, so yeah, and in that case, it is a double-edged sword. Good ideas spread, so do bad ones. And um, I, I think it's kind of unavoidable to an extent. And hopefully, the good ones win out. But it's something we've also seen. So, so t- to your first example, business, the standard of living going up, and and how. The downside of that is often that some jobs go away. And you talked a little bit about trying to balance that and find that mm-hmm. balance and how that has certainly been a challenge for everyone. You you talk a bunch about media and the media's role in a lot of our conflicts. I think you're right. I agree. Well, I think you're right about the fact that globalization, globalism, whatever it is you want to call it, has certainly had a positive impact in many ways, but it's also had a negative impact. I think we agree on that. But do you think that the media has done a good job of explaining to people that we that it's a trade-off? Like some of these things, some of these things that we consider to be horrible, um, the the job jobs going overseas, which I agree I hate, that there are upsides as well? Or do you think that media, whether that be left-wing media or right-wing media, picks its side and only pushes what they consider to be their agenda. I mean, are, yeah. are people being fair in on the right when they talk about the benefits of globalization? Do they leave out the downsides? Do they leave out the upsides? I mean, how much responsibility does media have when it comes to us you and I having this conversation and recognizing, yeah, recognizing, yeah, there's some good things about it, but there are also some bad things about it, and we have to figure out the balance. That's what you do in your life, right? It's what I try to do in my life. But we don't do that in the public sphere at all. People choose a side and they scream about losing jobs overseas and completely leave out the benefits or vice versa. Right. No, it is. It is really hard. And I think that is it should be the media's job to kind of play referee or moderator for having this conversation, for weighing the pros and cons. But it, you're right. It doesn't happen. And that is frustrating. And one one of the examples that I want to use that's 
kind of always in the news and almost never portrayed fairly is the issue of immigration. Immigration uh, and globalization, globalism kind of go hand in hand, but it's very, very hard to get an honest conversation about immigration. You know, I'm someone who is criticized from the left because I, I think mass migration is it does have a lot of challenges that I think places like Canada are especially starting to to feel right now. And I've also criticized on the right, uh, you know, especially for people who are more farther right, because I'm not totally against immigration. I am in favor of a skills-based, merit-based immigration system like in the past Canada used to have and like Australia currently does have. You know, when it, immigrants, like anything else, aren't all the same. And it's absolutely a question of let's look at the things from an individual basis, weigh pros and cons. Uh, from the media, all we ever hear is about, uh, you know, illegal immigration, this illegal immigration, that. It's like, okay, well, what about non-illegal immigration, right? Can we have a conversation about that? Because it's not just all about the border wall. Uh, you know, there are people who have uh, doctorates who aren't able to come over to the U.S. for whatever reason. Meanwhile, everyone is con like concerned about this one specific facet of it. So that is very, very frustrating. And I think the media, the political establishment have absolutely dropped the ball. I don't even want to say drop the ball because that makes it sound unintentional. I think there's a lot of perhaps even willful obfuscation of the issue, uh, which is why, you know, people who are in independent media almost have a bigger responsibility because they need to talk about the things that no one else is talking about. But aren't they talking about some things that no one else is talking about? Sometimes there's a reason the other folks aren't talking about it. I mean, I'm, I, I, I hear when you said that immediately, I, I, I've heard that argument in the past. And I think about family members, friends of mine, uh, acquaintances of mine, neighbors of mine who say, well, I listen to such and such or I watch such and such because the other people don't tell the whole story. They don't tell the truth. They don't give you the entire, all the facts. But then when I find out that what they're listening to is uh, some network or reading some blog or website that's talking about fraud in the election or how the election was stolen, I think sometimes to myself, well, there's a reason that that's not being talked about anywhere else. And it's because there's not been evidence of it. Like, are, are some independent media outlets, and, and I'm not saying that, that just happens on the right. There are things that I believe that are, are parallel on the left as well. But are some independent media outlets going a little too far with this whole, well, we'll tell you the, the truth that no one else will tell you. And the reality is that it's not really the truth. Are these election fraud claims? Are they, um, are they fake news? Um, and and well, I think ahead. when it comes to let's say specifically election fraud stuff, um, I think it would it's it's wrong to say that there's no evidence, right? The question is is there widespread evidence? Um, voter fraud is unfortunately something that does happen, uh, but it the question is is it enough? Has there been enough of it to actually change election results? Which is a different a different thing. Um, in terms of what is and what is not worthy, I guess, of being reported, I think that should be up to each and every single individual to decide for themselves. I, I don't like the idea, and I get I get what you mean, right? Some like I've I've had people suggest stories to me, and I'm like, okay, well, that I, no one cares about that. Uh, but I, I think it is important that at least someone out there might be able to talk about it. Uh, you know, when it comes to things like the election. I, I do think that it is it is important that we have people who aren't just part of the same media establishment that is owned by these same conglomerates uh, and rooting for the political establishment, whether that's on the left or the right, who's controlling the narrative and what people are aware of in terms of reporting. 
Right, fair, but but aren't there some things that uh, is it? Are we are we splitting hairs when we talk about? There's no evidence of election fraud versus there's no evidence of widespread election fraud versus there's evidence of a lot of election fraud, but not enough to change the outcome. I mean, it, it, the 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 goalpost seems to be moving a little bit, doesn't it? I mean, I mean we've the, the always goal- known that I think most people will admit that certainly there have been historically instances of some people trying to vote the wrong way or vote illegally. But historically, those situations have been not just not widespread, but they've been very specific and they've been stopped. And that's the reason we know about them, because somebody stopped them. But what what I'm talking about is some of the stories that people might hear on OANN or Newsmax or one of those places that's trying to come up right now that the president listens to where you're hearing Sidney Powell talk about, you know, the president should take or Michael Flynn, the president should should declare martial law in order to get rid of some of this uh, to to take the ballot boxes. And and I understand what you're saying about people should make the decision for themselves. But if you only listen to one thing. You're not going to I mean, people aren't going to fact check the news that they have chosen to watch, right? I mean, in order to make that independent decision, you've got to be someone who's curious enough to go and Google it. Do you think people are really curious enough to go and fact check the people who they think are their fact checkers? Well, that's, no, I actually don't think that way. I don't I mean, think that's that is scary. the case. I think, but that's that's the downside of democracy that we all have to live with, right? We are in a system of government where we've in, in, invested a lot of power and still a lot of power in people who aren't professional politicians. Well, thank goodness on that count, but who live their everyday lives, probably only minimally interested in politics, but they are ultimately the ones who have all the political power. Uh, so no, I, I don't think that the average person is going to take the time to make sure they're hearing a, a well-balanced amount of news from different sources and look up primary sources. But, you know, the 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 only other option in, in that case would be to try and have like this top down control of media narrative, which I think is is even worse. I think the problem you're talking about is, is people that the not- only other option. Well, uh, is there yeah, not a middle ground somewhere? I mean, I agree. Top down control of the media narrative would be worse for sure. But is there not some sort of middle ground? Is there not some sort of, is there a way to, I don't know the answer here. I'm really literally asking you, is there a way to define news better? I mean, can we just say news must be accurate? (laughs) Well, because that's what places like Facebook and Twitter are trying to do. But even we see that, uh, you know, just the idea of saying what is and what is not accurate a lot of times that is subject to opinion, unfortunately, because situations aren't always cut and dry. Uh, You know, we we've seen people like on on Twitter try to post factual things uh, like with the Hunter Biden story, for example, and have been censored for uh, allegedly spreading disinformation. Uh, You know, even if you. But where do they get the facts from? I mean, the fact. So I guess. But my question is, what defines a fact? I mean, the sky is blue is a fact. True or false? Yeah, that's I mean, there true. are so we we know that there are some things unless, that are demonstrably factual. You might say actually the sky is black and it only looks blue because of whatever okay. scientific thing. And okay, I don't fair. want there to be a, the equivalent of a ministry of truth who is in charge of deciding that. I think that is a scary thing 
to happen because what might look like an open an open and shut case a lot of the times might not be and i just don't want someone you know in facebook or youtube or heck even the government with the ability to say what is and what is not the case do people i mean i i hear what you're saying i mean i even heard what you said about the scientist thing and it, i mean part of me wanted to roll my eyes hell i might have done it but that's radio so no one can tell <laughs> that's, that's, but that's but the truth is but the truth is i understand what you're saying yes there are some there are always ways to nitpick uh, certain things and grass is a con is a construct it's not green it's uh, it's mm -hmm. our i mean right so i'm with you on that but but i guess what i wonder is like the arguments those types of arguments that you know we people should be allowed to say whatever they want to say seem to be popular as long as your side or i'm not saying you lauren but as long as that my side happens to be winning right now or happens to be having success in that way and as soon as my side starts losing, you know, then it's gerrymandering. It's voter fraud. The election was fraudulent. I was one of the first people to to say, listen, we've got to stop with the damn voter fraud arguments in 2016 because I thought, listen, it sucks. Stop with the arguments about the Electoral College. We knew the rules going in. We didn't play the game correctly. Hillary did not go to Wisconsin like she should have, et cetera. Stop that shit. But in the moments, in the in the months following 2016's election, there were lots of calls for why the Electoral College is horrible and why the vote was stolen or why certain things, people weren't able to get to the ballot box, blah, blah, blah. And I was one of the first to say, listen, th this is not, you can't, we can't be making these arguments. But that was fine. Freedom of speech was acceptable to folks on the left at the time. And and making these accusations was acceptable because they were being they were somewhat effective. They had a they had a large group of people who said them with them. Rachel Maddow was agreeing, Chris Hayes was agreeing, et cetera. Well, now progressives hate the OANNs of the world and the the what's the other one? Newsmaxes of the world because they're saying things that we don't, I don't believe are accurate or fair. But folks who are on the right. I'm not putting you into that OAN Newsmax category necessary, but make some of the arguments that you're making. It's okay. Freedom of speech. Like, well, I don't I think, think it's right either time is my point. I don't think it's acceptable either time to make accusations based on the fact that I didn't win. I have lost a few things in my life <laughs> on a national stage, <laughs> and I have never said the process was rigged against me. Uh, you know, I didn't claim that people couldn't get through because, but Ruben's lines were open. I, I didn't claim that. I don't care. Like, we don't we just make these arguments and justify how right we are when we have, when we're winning? Well, I think there's a, there's a good point to be made from that. And, you know, if, if there was no hypocrisy in politics, there wouldn't be much of anything going on. But I guess my question for you would be, what does it mean for something to be unacceptable? If you think it's unacceptable for, you know, people to now start saying, oh, well, the game was rigged when they've lost, does that mean that you get to criticize them for it? Or does that mean that their posts need to be taken down for it? Right? Because both, both would kind of lead to the fact or speak to the fact that you think they're unacceptable, but one is a lot more heavy handed than the other. Uh, and, you know, I, I definitely didn't support and there were 
I didn't see anyone when uh, the whole Russiagate thing was the topic of the day saying that people like Rachel Maddow should be removed from the airways for spreading disinformation and conspiracy theorists. And I, if, if that had happened, I wouldn't have supported it. And do I think, you think there is a, do you think there is a higher expectation for anyone? I mean, if I posted or you posted something on Twitter that was completely factually inaccurate, um, I don't know that I would get tagged as fa- as fake information because I don't think enough people follow me. You have more followers than I do, but so you might. But yeah, but no. some of us, but some of us don't necessarily draw the attention of the Twitters, um, the Twitter bots, or whoever it is that's that's making these decisions, because some of us are. You know, are, are there is there a good reason behind that? I mean, the fact that maybe no. I could put up the sky is purple and they wouldn't pull it down. But if if Boris Johnson put up the sky is purple, they might. Uh, I think you're out. absolutely right. There is a big inequality when it comes to enforcement of things like terms of service agreements and when it comes to like spreading fake news or even when it comes to something like harassment, which we've seen also be a pretty big issue. And I think that is one of the the major flaws inherent of trying to vest so much on these moderation techniques. Oh, well, uh, I'm not know, disagreeing with it. I'm actually yeah. saying I my point was not to say that it's OK for my point was actually to say that, well, but shouldn't some people be held to a higher standard? I mean, if I, I wouldn't get it, I would not have my, my tweets criticized or labeled as false today, but had I won my congressional race, and if I were a sitting member of Congress, I would expect that they would hold me to a higher standard. Is that not fair? That if I I have put myself in that position, that I should be held to a higher standard? I mean, I absolutely think that a congressman should be held to a higher standard when it comes to commenting on the news, then, you know, your average Twitter egg, but that doesn't necessarily mean be held to a higher standard by Twitter. Because again, I don't trust Twitter's standards. I, you know, I think they've been... But that's why you went to Parler then, right? Right, right. But it's a, I guess my point is Twitter isn't the government, right? It's right, a but, private but, company. But they own the bulletin board. Yeah, they they can they are free to do that, and uh, you know what what my response has been always consistently when it comes to this issue is like, all right, Twitter, you can curate feeds however you want, you can shadow ban, you can uh, you know prevent one of the oldest newspapers in in the nation from posting news, the New York Post. Uh, you can do that, but I think if you do that, you are no longer a platform, and it is unfair legally for you to claim to be such. And as as such, I think you should lose any protections that you have under Section 230. I mean, like I said, they can do what they want. They're a private company, but if they act that way, they should be liable as any other private company is. Right. So if they own a bulletin board and they're only letting certain things be on their bulletin board, then you're saying that that's fine. But what exactly? Help me understand what it is that that you feel they're protected from. All right. So so the, the, the issue with Section 230, uh, which is kind of what places like YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter have really been shielded by is that it makes a distinguish between publishers and platforms. So essentially, the the law says that if, if a site like Twitter or Facebook is just a platform, i.e. it's a bulletin board, people come and post whatever they want on it, then Twitter, Facebook, YouTube should not be liable for what people post on it. So for example, if I post a, a copyrighted version of your song on my YouTube page and you sue me for copyright infringement, you're suing me. You're not suing YouTube, right? Because, hey, YouTube mm-hmm. is just what? I so That's not me. I didn't do that. Right. Okay. Right. Okay. And I think that's fair. I think that is definitely fair. Uh, you know, 
these individual users. It's not Twitter's problem. It's not YouTube's problem. But however, there there is a little bit of a caveat there because you do have um, sites like, let's say, the Washington Post, where if one of their editors posts something defamatory, the Washington Post themselves can be sued for that. So what's the difference there? It's the difference between being a publisher and a platform. So a platform is a place where anyone can say whatever their users. It's it's not YouTube's. YouTube isn't like kind of favoring anybody. It's it's almost like the Wild West. A, a publisher is is someone who actually takes editorial control and has editorial dis- discretion. That way, you know, there's enough involvement from the publisher. To where it speaks to the fact that, oh, if this if this is there, if this is present on the site, it's actually because the publisher wanted it there. Uh, like the, the Washington Post, if, if an article right. or an op-ed get posted, it's because okay. the Washington Post wants it there. Right. I'm following you. So, yep. For the longest time, uh, you know, the defense of YouTube, Facebook, Twitter, of why they shouldn't be sued or held liable for whatever is posted onto their site. And that includes things like, unfortunately, uh, you know, revenge pornography or copyrighted material or, or whatever is because, hey, we're just a publisher. But the thing is, as places uh, like Facebook, Twitter and YouTube have taken more and more um, involvement in what is posted on their site. They've begun to editorialize feeds. They now lift up authoritative sources. They shadow ban things. They they put disclaimers on stuff. They are gradually just becoming publishers, or at the very least, that that line is becoming blurred because they are editorializing. I think this is a lot more true when it comes to YouTube than somewhere like like but Facebook. So I so think. let me ask you this: So if I own a bulletin board. Because 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 your argument on its face makes some sense. I mean, I'm sitting here listening to you and thinking, okay, yeah, well, that, okay, that, I'm that following you. We're getting we're getting there. We're getting there. Yeah. But then I think to myself, but wait a second. If I have a bulletin board, um, and I let you post whatever you want to up there, but then you walk up and you tack up a picture of your ex naked, and and it's for it's for revenge porn, <laughs> for example. And I take that down because I say, listen, you can post everything you want, anything you want up here, except there are certain rules still. You can't put up something that is offensive or it's personal, it, that, it, that attacks somebody else. You can't put up their personal information, et cetera. That doesn't necessarily make me an editor, does it? That doesn't make me a publisher. It doesn't necessarily make me responsible for that content as long as I am making sure that not only are you not allowed to post pictures of naked people, no one is allowed to post pictures right. of naked people, right? You're, you're absolutely right there. And that is an important distinction. And Section 230 does allow for sites to have some terms of service, right? So it's not like, like you said, it's not being a publisher and editor for Facebook to say, hang on, do not post this nasty photo of your ex. This is right. this goes okay. against our terms of service. Um, and I've not seen anyone try to claim that in in doing so, uh, Twitter or Facebook should lose that protection. Um, The executive order that the Trump administration actually put out to clarify Section 230 um, makes it very clear what actions a platform would need to take in order to be viewed as a publisher. And most of it goes to editorial choices. So one of the biggest tells that was uh, mentioned there is that are, are they treating content differently based on who it's published by or who it's posted but by. But are they? Because you mentioned the New York Post and I can open Twitter right now and find dozens of articles from the New York Post that are not posted or that are not uh, 
um, yeah, now flag that, that are no, no, that that's was, always been the case. Yeah. There have been New no, York. That Post. wasn't the case leading up to the election. The New York Post was banned from t- posting on their Twitter account after they broke the Hunter Biden story. They were post. They were banned from posting completely about the uh, or posting yeah. about the Hunter Biden thing. I'm, but their I'm terms they were they were banned from posting completely. But people, but part of the terms of service do say. I mean, listen, I'm trying. I'm actually kind of trying to find agreement because I think the social media is, is has been somewhat destructive. So I'm looking for ways to to find agreement, but I can't hear because the because the terms of service do say that if you break a rule or if you continue to have violations and post things that are um, uh, it factually inaccurate, et cetera, then we can ban your account for a certain period of oh, time. Well, we can suspend it. Inaccurate about the well, I don't have that. I don't have that information in front of me, but the argument would then be if they banned the New York post for something that was factually inaccurate and the New York post says, no, it wasn't factually inaccurate. Then the New York post has the same sorts of protections that I would have. They can sue Twitter for violating their own terms of service, and courts no, can. You, there, uh, there has never been a. No, no, no. A, I'm not saying suing them as a. I'm not saying suing them as a platform, but suing them for violating their own terms of service. And if Twitter's terms of service say you can be banned if you post something factually inaccurate, and then they ban the New York Post because they believe something was factually inaccurate, then. The New York Post just has to say, wait a second, prove that it's factually inaccurate. You can't. It's not factually inaccurate. Therefore, you violated your terms of service. I mean, the argu- who, the, who right, is the now, honest I, on? I completely agree that they should be able to do that. I think if if individuals were able to take their cases against that, would I, I would support that. But we have not had a case of a, a court actually saying that public platforms should be as bound to their terms of service as the users. That has not happened, which is very, very frustrating. We've seen people like I think Devin Nunez and Prager, you tried to do that, but they have not been successful. But see, I... But are they not successful because... Are they not successful because the courts found that no... Twitter didn't violate its terms of service because that's no. what happened with Devin. No, that's what happened with Devin Nunes. They, they was found that Twitter did not violate their terms of service. Not that Twitter was not liable, but simply that they didn't violate their terms of service. Well, they're, they're, Twitter's terms of service. That's the thing. Like Twitter's terms of service does not promise its users that we will protect your posts unless this, this and this. Right. That's not how their terms of service are written. And I think it's very, very intentional. But I, I, I'm someone who I'm, I'm not a libertarian. I don't think corporations should be able to do whatever they want. I believe in consumer protections to a point. I don't think it's okay for a, a restaurant or, a, you know, a, a food manufacturer to completely poison their customers. I think customers should have the right of redress. And I think the same should absolutely be true when it comes to big tech. I think individual users who have been wronged, who've had their channels deleted or whatever, should have the right of redress for these big platforms. And I think the only reason why consumer protection laws have not extended to big tech is because of, frankly, lobbying. Is there not an argument that when you go to court, you must be able to show damages, right? And so if Twitter is free to me, if I don't pay for Twitter, and when I don't pay for Twitter, uh, you know, I, I there's no damages if they don't let me use it, right? So... That, isn't that the reason? I mean, if if if, if I spill, what are the damages? How do you quantify the damages of not being well, able it, to use the platform? Well, 
I wouldn't say not being able to use the platform specifically, although, at, you know, there are people who are actually social media influencers whose entire uh, entire presence is based on social media. But let's look at the issue of Nick Sandman. Um, who was the uh, the Covington Catholic kid? Right. Um, you know, he was defamed on social media and uh, by places like CNN, and them posting that type of stuff on social media. It actually, I think, absolutely quantifiably. Did he sue CNN? Yes, he did. And how did that go? Uh, they ended up settling out of court. Uh, okay, so he so essentially he won against CNN. Did he yes. sue Twitter? Uh, no, he did not sue Twitter. Right, but that's because Twitter didn't have because CNN's the one who defamed him, right? But I think, so if I, I defame you, so if I defame you I on Twitter, should have been able to sue uh, Twitter because there are people like Reza Aslan who are calling his face punchable. Which I mean, people have been banned off Twitter for less, and that was allowed to remain up. I think he should have been able to sue Twitter for that. But but hey, why not Reza Aslan? He's the I one who said something. Both. Sue, sue them all. Heck, like. But but, I'm, but I get so I guess I get really confused because it seems like what we want as a society, not just you, although you're saying it here, what we want as a society is for Twitter to take down everything that offends us, but let us say anything we want to. Like it no, sounds like I'm not asking for that. <laughs> I want Twitter to enforce rules evenly. That's all. But that they're I'm only asking. not enforced evenly if you don't feel like they agreed with you on what was offensive. I'm not saying you personally, the global you, all of us. We we only feel like they're not enforced evenly if Twitter happened to not agree with us on what is. Let me let me tell you what I have. I can't. I'll, I'll do it right now just for fun. I usually find used to find. I'm not. I'm not nearly as well known anymore, so it doesn't happen as often. But I used to be able to go in just for fun, search my name on Twitter and the five first things You're that pop, five first things that pop up would be the nastiest shit you've ever yeah. heard in your life. I am I'm actually lucky today because for the past few days they've mostly been nice. <laughs> it's Chris it's Christmas. Christmas is my good season. But usually I can open it up and just have the nastiest things said about me. You know why there are no damages there? when nasty things are said about me because I don't give a shit, you know? So Reza right, Aslan, but, but so Reza Aslan saying that somebody has a punchable face, there are no damages there well, unless you choose the things that have been said nasty about me on Twitter. Court works, right? So if someone defames you. Shouldn't it be? Shouldn't it be? Well, I, I think there's a, a, you're kind of, undermining the whole issue of like libel cases and defamation cases. For example, if I am, maybe they need to be undermined, but okay, keep going. Let's say I'm an author and, uh, you know, I had this great career, but all of a sudden someone on Twitter says that I am trans hating or something like that. Uh, I'm thinking of J.K. Rowling right now. Um, That story going viral actually can have a measurable impact and damages on potential future sales. So now we're talking about where damages are actually quantifiable in terms of dollars. Uh, and, you know, people have been taken to court for things like that, for defamation. Um, Goss, was it Majid Nawaz? He, he won a huge settlement from the Southern Poverty Law Center who wrongly labeled him as an anti-Muslim extremist and things like that. Um, so, I mean, it, it's already established that we can take people to court for, for things that, that they say. But nobody and has I, taken, I, but J.K. Rowling has not been able to take anybody to court. Because because no. the person who said she was trans-hating has the right to have an opinion. 
That's not a factual right. statement necessarily. Saying that she is trans-hating is not necessarily a factual statement. The Southern Poverty Law Center, on the other hand, is an organization that has the reputation of and has positioned itself and as, as a group that has a definitive list of people who are well, uh, no, terrorists not, or who are hate groups, why, et cetera. Yeah, I mean, the, the, like I said, opinion But I'm is explaining one, why there's a difference. That's a, there's a reason you can win that lawsuit against the okay. Southern Poverty Law Center because they have positioned themselves as a no, it's as not, a, it's not an authority. Based on their position. It's about what they what they are claiming someone else has or has not done. So I'm right, not, but I'm if, not I claim, if I claim if I claim that you are a terrorist, he's not if I you can't win a suit against me about that simply because I don't have any authority to tell you a terrorist. I said I, you're I could, Lauren Chen's a terrorist. Lauren Chen's a terrorist. I could that actually, doesn't have information. I mean it's not necessarily the amount that I might be entitled to would obviously be impacted from the the notoriety or amount of damage that is caused but i could like that doesn't change its legality in terms of civil law on its face it would still be illegal for no you to it do wouldn't it. be it wouldn't be but, illegal for me to say that if it is an opinion it is my opinion it is my opinion yeah, that lauren that, that, like saying saying that someone is a terrorist is is that's more that's that's a lot different than saying that someone is a bigot right so I think there there might be only if I, oh, it's only it's only if it is only different if I say that I have factual evidence proving this was an act that you performed. You know, uh, if, what what does terrorist mean, Lauren? Terrorist could I mean, simply mean terrorist could definition of terrorism, right? Terrorism is is. Like the, there are actually laws surrounding this. Well, yeah, but 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 what are what are those definitions? I think that's been a problem. We're going down this crazy rabbit hole, which they're going to kill me for in a minute. But I'm enjoying it, so I'm going to keep it going. Um, their their terrorism hasn't been very well defined. Period, and that's one of the reasons that we have this global war on terrorism, and we don't even know what the hell it is that we're fighting. But my point is, it is an opinion. If I say that you are an, again, obviously, I wouldn't be having this discussion with you if I thought that you were an idiot. But if I say that you're an idiot. That's an opinion. It's yeah, not factual, right? If I manufacture some sort of IQ score and say that, look, I have this IQ score of Lauren Chen and it's only 71, then we've got a libel case on our hand because that is a blatant lie. It's not an opinion. I'm trying to use fact. You see that? I mean, that's the difference that I'm, and I am getting texted by the producers like, stop this, stop. <laughs> I think when it comes to terrorism specifically, though, like, there is a definition of terrorism looking at like in, in Canada, criminal code, it does define terrorism. Well, There's honey, not- we ain't in Canada right here in Miles. We're in America uh, I'm, I'm, and we I'm don't sure have the same libel laws. I'm sure there's one in the U.S. as well, but there's no there's no criminal definition of, let's say, uh, transphobia or something. So that I think is why, you know, J.K. Rowling isn't able to do anything, whereas Majid Nawaz, I forget exactly what the charge is, but they were definitely saying like factually inaccurate things about him. Um, and, you know, the same we just saw with Johnny Depp. He he had this whole thing, uh, this whole suit against the son for defamation because they called him a wife beater. And a lot of people were wondering why that suit against the son ended up devolving into this almost prying look into his and Amber, Amber Heard's relationship. It's because, well, if it's defamation, it needs to not be true. But in order to settle the defamation case, the judge kind of needs to see, well, are you actually a wife beater? And it turns out that in this uh, judge's opinion, yeah, there is enough evidence there that the son can say that. And it's not it's not well, the son, the son and the, the, the libel laws in England are completely different than the ones here also. So that's a that's a hard. Ex- my, my point is, do should we not maybe take a re 
relook at what we consider what we're getting offended by. I mean, I I could go down not to put you on the spot, and I know we, I'm going to change to our quick wire round because listeners did actually send in a lot of questions for you. Um, uh, but but I, if if you go through anybody's Twitter feed who's in in the public eye, you'll find instances where they have said things on Twitter that. Our, I mean, Twitter is like where you go to say the first thing that comes to your mind before you think, you know, <laughs> Twitter. Yeah. And, and like, we know that no one thinks things through very carefully and thinks, OK, let me have a logical discussion on Twitter. And I think in some ways that's kind of how they've they've guarded themselves. Jack Dorsey has built a, a format and built a brand where we know nobody really thinks through what they say on Twitter Twitter is just for people to say the first thing that comes to their mind, and then he doesn't even let you edit it. You know what I mean? You have to yeah. delete it. So <laughs> this is not this is not a, a platform where people are saying things that they have thought through with their attorneys. So should we not maybe take a look at the fact that maybe we're all getting offended a little too quickly? And I know a lot of the stuff that you've talked about is is cancel culture related, and I'd love to. Um, have you back, and I hope we do have you back again to talk maybe about more about that type of stuff too. But it seems to me as I as we have this conversation, and and it's not unlike a conversation that I have with anybody on this program all year long, which is that you know certain things are horribly offensive and they must have a stop put to them, but other things are freedom of speech. You know, the things that I say, and I believe that's freedom of speech. I should be allowed to say that. And right. the and things I, that other I, people say are horribly offensive and they should not be, they, sh they should be taken down. They shouldn't be I allowed. I agree with you. And that's why, I mean, the whole reason why I bring up this Section 230 thing, it's not to encourage social media censorship against stuff that I don't like. It's to say, hey, if you don't want to have this happen, Twitter, if you don't want to have every uh, other person suing you over something someone else said about them, then just ease up, right? Embrace the status of platform. That's what I want. I want to return to let's, let's not sue everyone over something they said about the other person online. I would like that. So the, the reason why I and a lot of other people bring this up and want like the, the hammer to fall on Twitter, on YouTube and Facebook for all of these things, it's not so that we can live in a world where censorship is dialed up. It's so we can live in a world where it's dialed back, right? And so it's just wanting them to feel the consequences of their actions over what they've been doing uh, that I think it's a good idea. It's not, I, I want them to, I want Section 230 to stay because I, I, I don't think it's a, a good idea to, to have somewhere, someone like Facebook liable for who, what, whoever posts on it. But I, all of what's frustrating is the double standard. I'll let you have the last word on that because otherwise I might get fired. Um, <laughs> a quick fire round. I've listen. I've totally loved this. To be honest with you, we wanted to have you on because you were one of our. You were on our very first show. Um, of I remember of how when the heck we could we... Like, sit next to each other. That was fun. No, I don't. <laughs> but I'm, but I believe you. I've heard I've heard stories about it. Yeah. Um, yeah, you were on our very first show. We only made it through two in person before we ended up coming here into quarantine. And I've been in my uh, office in my house for the past year doing these episodes. Uh, we wanted to have you back on to kind of recount the year. Um, but this conversation ended up being 
so much more fun to me um, <laughs> because 2020, let's be honest, it was sort of boring. Um, <laughs> quick, Nothing really happened. Quick fire questions. We ask listeners to send in questions. You can do that um, as well. Politicon, um, at Politicon on Instagram or Twitter. God forbid we send anything on Twitter though. At Instagram, at Politicon on Instagram or Twitter, or uh, you can email to podcasts at politicon.com. Um, quite a few brought in um, for Lauren this week, but I'm going to start with Mitch from Stockton, California, since it's sort of adjacent to what we were talking about. Mitch from Stockton, California asks, why do people still believe the mainstream media? Um, I think a lot of the time it might be confirmation bias. Honestly, I love believing that I'm right 100% of the time, even though it might only be like 95% Mm -hmm. of the time. So I think confirmation (laughs) bias plays a big part of it. And I think the other part might just be... it's comfortable, right? It's, it's easier. The mainstream media, it's everywhere. It's accessible. Uh, they've really done a good job of branding themselves as the official authorities on things like that. So it's, it's easier to just go along with it. And I think a lot of the people who aren't, uh, you know, politicos like you and I who really keep up with this stuff, they might not be aware that there, you know, there even is this huge movement to question or challenge what, uh, you know, official sources might be saying. So I, I think there are a lot of people who um, might might just trust them because, hey, it's the news. And historically, why wouldn't you trust the news? Listen, I don't, I don't disagree. I'm not supposed to interject, but I'm having fun with you, Lauren. So um, <laughs> I'm going to interject anyway during the quick fire round. Is it possible that confirmation bias is also the reason that Fox News and these the right wing media outlets are successful. I mean, if oh, it, if, I, I if it's good for Fox the goose, News isn't it good for the gander? The, I consider Fox News part of mainstream media. Like, don't get well, me then wrong. Well, isn't it isn't isn't it possible that confirmation bias maybe why the Blaze has been successful, or maybe why OANN? Any, I would say any media outlet for sure. Okay, Amanda from Phoenix, Arizona says it feels like there are no more libertarian places left. Is the USA the last best hope? Yes, I would say definitely. Uh, Like I said, I'm I'm small government. I'm not libertarian, though. Um, But, you know, I I see eye to eye with libertarians about a a lot of things. And I think if we look at like actual policy, social policies, uh, the U.S. is pretty good. But in terms of like economic libertarianism, U.S. actually isn't, uh, you know, ranked highest for ease of doing business. Other places like, for example, Hong Kong rank a lot higher. So even the U.S., I think if, if you're someone who loves liberty, uh, you've, you've got a lot, a lot to think about and question. Let me tell you what, Lauren, your fans let's love you because this week they have come in. I've seen so many more red state uh, questions this week than we normally do, admittedly. <laughs> Rachel Rach, Rachel from Boise, Idaho. Idaho. Ooh, sorry about that, Rachel. Sorry about that, Idaho. Rachel from Boise, Idaho asks, did the swamp defeat Donald Trump? I think the swamp defeated <laughs> all, I mean, all of the the populace, the, the people who were trying to fight back. I think, uh, you know, and, and what's funny about the swamp is that I've been enjoying seeing uh, AOC. I'm not a fan of her, but I've been enjoying seeing her try to fight back against it as well. And I think, uh, you know, Washington, it's it's a muddy place, a swampy place. And I don't I don't think anyone who who believes in, in the corruption of that area is, is surprised to see how things have played out. Taylor from Seattle, Washington asks, should what? Man, today I've got. I've got COVID mouth. I can't talk at all. (laughs) Taylor from Seattle, Washington asks, should Russian and Chinese interference be treated differently? Uh, Treated differently than what, I suppose? But look, I'm I'm from each other. From each other. Um, No, I I, I don't think 
So I think any election interference needs to be examined and, and called out, whether that's domestic, whether that's international. Uh, you know, what's interesting is that globally speaking, the U.S. does not have very secure elections. Uh, you know, in Canada, we we perform our elections very differently. We don't use electronic counters. We don't have widespread mail-in ballots. We require voter ID. Uh, and, I, I, you know, I'm someone who thinks that democracy is only as good as the efforts that are uh, made to upheld the the integrity of the election. So, you know, call them out, condemn it, regardless of who it's coming from. And, you know, this goes for, there were Democrats recently saying that Mitch McConnell's re-election was suspect. Fine, have an investigation. I'm, I'm someone who says, like, e- either way, even if it doesn't benefit the person I want to win, what's most important is the integrity of the vote. Just, just to uphold the integrity of Taylor's question, in case he was talking about um, non-election interference, we've definitely, we've seen um, that there was some Russian hacking, uh, quite a bit of Russian hacking into email systems and, and internet systems over the past uh, few weeks that's been revealed um, in D.C., several uh, executive departments, but very little discussion about that from the executive branch um are has there been enough um of a reaction a strong enough reaction to uh russia's hacking of the computer systems i mean i i think when it comes to that type of thing, um, I, you know, I'm not, I'm not an, I'm not a neoconservative. I know there are people out there who's like, all right, let's, let's, let's get boots on the ground and things like that, which I don't think is the right thing to do. Um, I would say, I think the right, the right thing to do there would be to be very upfront with the evidence that you have as to who is and who is not responsible. But I'm always very, I'm very tit for tat when it comes to international relations. And I think that if, if this type of interference bothers Americans, and this is kind of like where my non-American side comes out, uh, they should also keep that in mind the next time other countries are saying, please don't interfere with our elections or with our way of life and things like that. Um, and last one we'll do from the quick fire. Scotty from LA asks, <laughs> it's very depressing. Is our is our politics doomed to end in street battles between Proud Boys and Antifa? Ooh, you may not have, yeah. you don't have to answer that one directly. Sorry, Scotty. But are we, are we, are, is it possible for things to get better or are we just headed down a spiral that's going to be difficult to get out of? Honestly, I, I'm going to have to be a little bit pessimistic here. I'm not sure if things uh, are going to be any more unified. In the future, right? We we we've seen Biden, and I will say to his credit, he personally has tried to bring a unifying message, which I think is the right thing to do. He's saying, you know, I'm I'm your president now. Let's let's come together. I appreciate that, but I think there are a lot of people out there who don't want that to happen. And I think, you know, even after this election, we we we've still seen these skirmishes happen. We've still seen political violence happen. I don't think it's it's going to be as easy as, well, we can just dial down the rhetoric and everything will be okay. We are li- living in a time where there are people in the same country who have fundamentally opposing visions of A, what is happening, and B, what needs to happen in the future. And I don't, I'm not sure. Like, I, I, I'm hoping that, uh, you know, this is just me as someone who watches way too much news. And of course, the news tends to focus on the negative. I'm hoping that's just my confirmation bias speaking there. But I'm not. <laughs> I hope to be. Would we watch that. news that was only good news, though? I mean, seriously. Yeah. Haven't right. we? Haven't we learned that? I mean, I, I would. I wish we would, but I think the news networks have all learned that if they just tell us the positive, no one tunes in, right? Yeah, it's not interesting. I want the drama. I want the right. the conflict. Unfortunately, That's, that is yeah. very disappointing. Um, you know, I can't 
thank you enough for coming back on and, and wrapping out 2020. You're our last live episode of the year. Next week, we um, are going to have a special episode for all of you who are listening um, to sort of bring some of the highlights of uh, 2020 to you. And I'm kind of excited about uh, showing the the progress we've made from that first episode that we had with Lauren, our first ever live episode to our last live episode of 2020 with Lauren. Um, uh, I can't thank you enough for doing both of them with us. Um, I got to ask you before we leave in 2021, how the heck are we going to get along? Gosh, I, I think the, the main way we can get along is by hoping that we can at least see each other. That would be nice. I feel like we've all gotten a little bit meaner maybe in, in quarantine because we're not we're not going anywhere. We're on our laptops for too long. We haven't been with our friends and family. So I think that the first thing needs to be like, let's let's just get through this. Let's get to a point where we can hug each other once more. And then I think that'll make uh, any reunification or maybe or, that's uh, all we needed. Maybe we just needed to see how much worse it could get so maybe. that we would all want to get along a little bit better. Well, I was like, man, I still don't like you, but I miss seeing your face. Right. <laughs> exactly. Maybe that's that's all it took. Maybe that's what it took. Um, so, uh, Lauren, I can't tell you how much uh, of a pleasure it has been to talk with you again. Um, and I wish you, and I know we all wish all of us, uh, a very happy holiday and an incredible 2021. So please come back and talk with us in 2021. And 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 maybe we'll find some peace uh, <laughs> next year. <laughs> yeah, here's hoping. And thank you so much for having me. It's always a pleasure. And I, I hope you all have a great holiday, too. Lauren Chen, thank you so much. Thank you. We'll be back next week um, with a very special episode, which we're all very excited about. Um, a, a look back at how the heck are we going to get along over our very first calendar year of uh, episodes. Some really exciting moments, some funny moments, some uh, explosive moments, some uh very, very thoughtful moments. It's been a real pleasure and a real treat to be able to talk to some like some really incredible minds and thinkers um, and, and leaders over this past year. It's been a, a blessing for me. I wish everyone a wonderful holiday and I'll be back here um, to guide you through next week's episode a little bit. Um, and I will see you then on how the heck are we going to get along? <laughs>